Value Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to yet another session of Radio Finance. Um, this is Emmanuel Daniel. I am the founder of The Asian Banker and, uh, and Wealth and Society. Uh, I think that all of the venture capital um, players, both the uh, supply side and the demand side, are very curious to know how uh, the VC funding universe is going to evolve uh, from this crisis. And this evening, I've got two uh, amazing guests, uh, Lisa Solodre, uh, the uh, general partner uh, of R3i Ventures, based in Singapore, but you know, globally invested, um, very focused on uh, deep tech with a good uh, perspective of um, a lot of the uh, general business uh, uh, startups that, that, that makes up the universe in, in Asia. And we also have uh, Kinga Tenis-Loska, who is the um, general partner of uh, Xperia Ventures out of um, London and, and uh, Poland. Um, and she has a fund uh, that is, uh, that is uh, invested since 2020 um, in, in, in Europe. Um, Lisa, can you start off by just giving us a sense of um, what you do and, uh, and how you invested? Yeah, so I'm an early stage deep tech venture angel for the most part. Uh, I've got an angel investment fund, R3i Ventures, deploying my own capital across uh, 12 portfolio companies around the world, all in deep tech or med tech. And we're raising a new fund uh, based out of Luxembourg, which is a smart city med tech fund, uh, which is pre-seed through to series A. I spend my days mostly in the trenches with our founders. Um, right now I'm between IoT Tribe, the Canadian Tech Accelerator and 500 Startups here in Asia. Uh, so I'm seeing both the decimation uh, of many of those general market play founders, as well as the consolidation for our deep tech founders. Many of the families in region have gone long uh, and are diversifying out to deep tech. So never has there been a better time to invest in a low volatility asset class. Kinga, how, are you also the uh, vice president of the uh, Polish PVC Funds Association? So, um, you know, you've got a community role there as well. And on top of that, uh, the fund that you run just give us a sense of uh, what you invested in. So yes, so Xperia, the first fund was around $20 million, just above that. Uh, it was raised from private high net worth individuals. Um, and uh, we also had an investment from the Swiss contribution program. So with the first fund, we made 17 investments. I would group them into two categories. One is um, software and software as a service businesses. The other one would be tech-enabled businesses. Uh, on the tech-enabled side, we have smart manufacturing, we have a gaming company, we have some marketplaces, so it's quite diverse. We have some e-commerce businesses as well. What we focus on as a fund are, first of all, co-investments. They will be pre-Series A, Series A, and Series B type of investments. So we'll look at companies that already have revenue and uh, some client base. We look yep. quite horizontally, so we like data-driven players that have a lot of machine learning, AI, understand scalability in that way. And then we will partner up with others for precise investments into verticals as we are not experts on every vertical. In terms of our portfolio, I would say we have three types of companies. 
we have a group of companies that is really benefiting from the current um, pandemic situation, which are the e-commerce players. It's like that they have crossed the, the kind of lines that we would have never expected with budgets that were created in, in December. We have a company that's done over 160% now in April of their budget. Um, so really, they're doing super well. Um, we also are seeing a group of these software as a service businesses, which I would treat as more defensible. Um, they have recurring revenue, so nothing bad is happening there. The clients are paying, but it's quite hard for them to grow now because the IT teams are sitting at home. They need to have a partner, a client on the other side. And here, what we are expecting is that actually COVID-19 has probably digitalized enterprises much faster than anything else in the past. The first quarter results of the major IT companies that just came out and uh, it seemed that the stock market um, you know, has not been as enthusiastic as we thought it should be. You have companies which are on teleconferencing tele and stuff which seem to have gone up. Netflix is doing very well and so on. But, but uh, the traditional guys, the IBMs, um, and Microsofts uh, have been trading some sort of sidewards. Um, does does the sentiment in in the in in the in the market uh, does that get reflected back into the investment um, you know in the investment community? Um, that's true. That there are some companies that are going to be doing better than others. Um, definitely, uh, as you said, all this e-commerce kind of development where you want to set up your own e-commerce shop whilst you were all offline, all the software to be able to do that. Um, but I guess uh, from the standpoint of the reflection on valuations and what's going on in the venture side, what we are seeing is, for example, some marketplaces are doing very, very badly. Uh, the kinds of marketplaces that didn't have the software as a service element to feed them real revenue every month. Uh, we're talking about the kind of marketplaces that were driven by huge growth, but then again, it was all investor new money coming in every 12, 18 months or so. So there they were kind of moving forward very fast, going to a place where they would have huge volumes and be able to sustain uh, themselves at some point, but yeah, that point fact, hasn't been reached yet. Just before uh, the pandemic struck, uh, the VC universe globally uh, had been trending downwards. Uh, there was a lot more dry powder available. Uh, and, um, and in fact, I would even say that the, the private equity industry had been, had been um, you know, climbing out quite well from a very long period of uh, conservativeness. Uh, and, uh, and the VC um, industry had sort of softened a lot. Um, was that your reading in December, in January, and then, uh, and then the pandemic struck? Uh, you know, what was your experience at that time in terms of raising funds and in, in terms of deploying them? Last year in Asia, uh, everyone was raising a new fund, right? It was, it was kind of like that time. It would hit the 10-year mark and everyone that you spoke to was raising a new fund. And in fact, last year, many early stage venture um, announced new funds, everything from 50 to 250 million, right? But this year, it's really a challenge. You see people out there who have $250 million fund mandates out there taking $50,000 checks. That's going to be a very long fundraise, right? And apparently it's uh, the seven 
the seven year low for raising capital this quarter. Um, so what I've seen building out my new fund as a you know, first time fund manager, um, taking other people's money is that uh, now is probably not the time to be a first time fund manager, number one, um, if you don't have something unique on offer. Uh, and certainly everyone out there that was raising general tech funds, I think is having a very difficult time. I've had five offers of CoGP. Um, everyone is looking to diversify away from general tech to deep tech uh, because there is a strong appetite to invest in that asset class. Um, so I think it really depends where you're looking to invest. And I think the second thing you talk about dry powder, there's absolutely a lot of dry powder out there. We did a survey across 140 VCs here in the region. Of all of those um, that were available, there was an 87% negative perspective on deploying capital last quarter. Just like totally a negative sentiment. Um, but what is interesting is when you pull that down to where those investors lie, right? Angel through to Series B. Um, actually, for those that raised funds last year, all those guys are still deploying, right? Those guys are actively looking for deals. Um, what we do see is those players that have had to deploy significant reserves to keeping current portfolio alive they really didn't anticipate that it would go on this long. And as a result of that, what you're seeing is VCs actually bandy together to syndicate, to try and keep their portfolios alive. And you know, that's not general VC behavior. So that's a positive thing um, that has come out of this ecosystem. In our accelerators, uh, we're supporting our founders to hold on as long as possible um, to try and drive revenues as opposed to go out there and raise cash too early and have to take a down round or, or worse conditions than normal. Um, right. And actually, when you look around the world, one of the things that has opened up is you're seeing European VCs hunting in Asia. You're seeing US VCs hunting in Asia for good deals because they tend to give better valuations and you tend to get reasonable terms. And of course, the market access that comes with that. But um, do you think that the, you know, the low interest rate environment, the the fact that um, you know uh, stock markets themselves have gone down considerably, so there's a upside potential there. Are these yeah. tugging at the uh, are these tugging at the strings as well? You're seeing a lot lower average ticket sizes because people's money is tied up in in the stock markets and they can't get out yet. So um, that being said, because uh, family offices in particular have rearchitected portfolio rapidly to go long, um, what we're seeing is some strong appetite to put together SPVs in this market for decent deals. And, uh, you know, you've got a lot of people that are raising a significant amount of capital in this market in very short right. periods of time. Europe is quite peculiar with the fact that probably around 70% of VC money in Europe comes as some sort of government money. Now, the largest investor in Europe is European Investment Fund. Uh, that's the largest LP, and they are practically in all the larger uh, VC funds out there. Um, and then, then there are national investment funds as well that will tend to invest. So Germany will have its own KFW, uh, France will have BPI France, Britain will have British Patient Capital, British Business Bank, and so on. So actually, the way that the VCs are structured is that it's always raising anything larger, it's always based on having a fund of funds, oh, government owned. Uh, party to the table and they are institutions that had money will have money and they will um, basically pay when they get the capital call the other thing is that the European 
market for private investors, for family offices, for VCs, and also money coming from the US into Europe or money coming from mutual funds, that isn't really built as a, as a structure yet. There are very, very few investors that actually take an active role in investing in venture capital. Um, that's something that needs changing. It's not really been in fashion to invest. So Central Europe is a kind of place where the opportunities are here because of the skills. The opportunities are here because of the valuations, but yeah. the institutional money is not there. Mm -hmm. So raising a fund out here does mean that you are taking on large amounts of LPs. So probably you will end up having um, an LP base of 80, 90 private individuals wow. that then you need to deal with for the investor relations part. And that's also a challenge. The government funding is the anchor. So it, it, uh, it provides the, uh, the, the critical mass of which uh, you're able to grow a fund. What about taxation and you know, incentives and um, government incentives. There are a few countries out here in Europe that have done it. The UK is a pioneer. They've built the EIS scheme, the Entrepreneur Investment Scheme, which is brilliant. Uh, and that provides a lot of tax incentives in other countries. Funds in Europe tend to be registered in tax neutral um, locations. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, so far, there aren't many countries that went through a tax incentive uh, program. For, especially right. for uh, private investors. Um, you know, so what are the benchmark valuations you're looking at for exits, for even for going long? What's the risk profile and what valuations are going to look like um, as the pandemic sort of uh, works its way through? Our portfolio uh, in terms of deep tech is quite broad, right? We have everything from robotics to material science to med tech uh, to digital health. Um, I guess the, the good news is, is that most of those industry segments are delivering a reasonable return. But we've also seen uh, some apathy in some segments where people just have oversubscribed to particular disciplines, right, and haven't got the return. Uh, I would say that uh, autonomous vehicles is pretty capped out right now. Um, if, you know, people have multiple investments in that particular discipline and they have yet to see the returns. And of course, add COVID to that. And uh, while everybody is looking at going autonomous, uh, whether or not that's going to happen soon is, you know, a very big question, uh, particularly with unemployment looking like it is and governments having to step up. So look, I think it's fair to say that um, in deep tech, we see pretty decent returns um, and robotics is only going to get better. Do you have a sense of where the, uh, the other players, the software vendors, the uh, general tech uh, guys are looking like? Uh, with credit costs going so low, um, you know, do you find the families are willing to take on higher risk um, and, and get into industries that, are, that they wouldn't generally get into stuff. And just take uh, traditional families based on real estate investments. All of these guys kind of relied on the next generation to take them into the new asset class of uh, deep tech and it didn't happen, right? Um, and so one of the reasons why uh, deep tech early stage is so attractive is that IR component that we're actually going to teach their families how to deep tech invest. Uh, and I think that's driving a very big willingness to diversify. Uh, the second reason, not just thinking about economic returns and uh, 
preservation, they're also thinking about impact, right? Um, and that's quite new to Asia. I think uh, it's fair to say that, you know, a lot of people are talking about it, few people are doing it, um, but you are starting to see those financial carve-outs. And, and I think that is going to, to drive stronger valuations. The other thing is, is everyone here is talking about investing in IP. Right. Instead of taking a traditional equity based approach to investment, actually carving out royalty and license returns in order to drive liquidity back into the portfolio early. Um, and that's a trend that I think we're seeing across the board. What do you think will valuations be pegged on for general science, not um, not necessarily deep science, but not, and not the institutional investors, um, the, the people that you're raising funds from today? Um, you know, what sort of exits they're going to see, especially when you think that IPOs are not going to look very good going forward, or are they? So uh, you are going to be able to invest over the next two years or so, and the exits are going to come in the next seven or eight years. That means that probably you're going to have an amazing return because that's exactly when the IPO market will probably come back. Um, today is probably not the best time to sell a company. Uh, and looking for uh, exits and M&A today is just better to mm -hmm. cut costs, try and extend the runway and survive as long as possible. Very but good point. How do, you, how, do you, are, how do you communicate that to the investor base? Is that a marketing message that, that the first four months of this year um, is really part of a long process anyway? Yes, because I wouldn't call it marketing. It's actually kind of scientific. I mean, it's data driven. If you go back to 2007, uh, what happened then, there was also a big peak and then a fall. And then in, uh, with, the, with the crisis there um, that lasted around two years, it was quite difficult to fundraise. But then the best companies were created at the time. So we're talking about the Airbnbs, the Twilos, and, uh, which have amazing valuations today. And what's made them more resilient it's also having to deal with the crisis as they were fundraising. The people then, the funds that invested back then made the highest returns in a very, very long time. In terms of structures, we are seeing that good companies are extending their runways with convertible debt, which means mm -hmm. the equity. Um, it's just that there are different terms for the conversion, which gives an opportunity today for those who have money on their bank accounts or who are able to uh, raise it very quickly to get into deals that maybe 12 months ago they couldn't get into. You know, even e-commerce, which is going through the roof in some segments, still needs more working capital today. Because mm -hmm. if you're an e-commerce player, you're really software, but somebody has to produce the stuff you're selling and you don't want your production teams your or your factories, your, your whole value chains behind you to go down the drain. So you're one of their clients, but the other clients are not paying because of the pandemic. So you need to make sure that they have enough capital fast enough to be able to continue working. So actually also the ones that are having success today also need more working capital. And that's a huge opportunity for VC to get into with convertible debt rounds. Kinga, when it comes to a you know, institutional purchase, um, the valuations and, and maybe the you know, tax treatment, something that is it, um, do you find that Asia is easier um, or that different jurisdictions in Europe are easier? We have a company in China. Uh, it's an advertising technology business, 
that uh, is data-driven um, and they're actually Polish and Shanghai-based. So it's quite a kind of cross-border, cross-continent um, play. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, we are, we are yet to exit this. So this is something that we've been in for three years. So it's very hard for me to say how that will pan out in the end. Um, but definitely, this is a kind of company that I would like to see more of. The kind of company that stands on more than one continent, quite an early stage, because it makes you defensible in case of situations like this pandemic. Uh, it means that you can still develop in one place versus another uh, more actively. This is a huge opportunity to have these cross-continent uh, companies. Right. And then I'm sure that the acquirers will be found everywhere because it's very interesting to build a company like that. Right. Lisa, um, you know, you're now familiar with um, also different jurisdictions, especially the, the jurisdictions that are incentivizing startups, uh, Luxembourg, yeah. Singapore, Switzerland, uh, and, and, and the startups that try to leverage different jurisdictions. Which players do you think are able to leverage that kind of a multi-jurisdictional approach? Um, you know, and do and, uh, you have any success stories that, that you, you, you're familiar with? Yeah, I mean, I just landed 11 companies in Luxembourg last week, right? So this is a, a huge opportunity for us. We see a 50% increase on average cross-border between Singapore and Luxembourg in valuation, um, simply because as they, they get their CE mark and they scale across Europe, uh, you're in a significantly larger market, right, in many instances. Um, and also some of the regulations there around these products, for example, the Digital Therapeutics Act that's coming into play around Luxembourg gives them a unique advantage because 50% of their global market is literally sitting on their front door. Um, so I think Luxembourg has done an excellent job in attracting high growth companies, not only out of Asia, but also out of Canada and, and Australia. Um, into that region as a single market European entry point. But we can forge a non-dilutive capital pathway for these guys of up to 15 million euros um, based on both Luxembourg local national incentives as well as the EU 2020. Wow. Um, and the Horizon 2020, uh, of which I've been an evaluator for three and a half years, we've just committed 100 billion euros to that fund uh, for 2021 and beyond. That being said, you know, Singapore government is doing a pretty great job, right? dollar for dollar matching, 70% upside to the VCs and on the ground support in 36 countries around the world. And one of my portfolios, Stratificare, it's a dengue diagnostic company. Um, you know, they've successfully signed now in the Mexican um, Ministry of, of Public Health, as well as with Brazil for the dengue prognostic going into those markets. And we had the Singapore government on the street with us every day there when the deal was struck. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much for both of you for you know spending this time with me. But both from Lisa and Kinga, you know, uh, as highly experienced uh, VCs, uh, what you're seeing in terms of um, the, the the funds that you've created, uh, both at the institutional level as well as the families. The whole idea of VC is longish, and therefore uh, the period is not long enough, uh, you know, for it to affect uh, overall trends, as it were. Um, government incentives uh, do play a very important role. Uh, the VCs themselves, uh, because of short-term um, issues, uh, the, uh, Lisa mentioned that you know, there's a little bit of banding together to, to manage funds, uh, and that's a good thing. 
um, and there's also crossover. Uh, VCs uh, going across jurisdictions looking for opportunities, um, and um, and you know everyone is going long basically in in um, um, you know in a general sense. Um, there's investment in IP um, increasingly, which is good. I was also very interested in industries that have a, a subscription model, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, um, a, a long-term uh, income model and, and how those were being affected uh, by the crisis. But um, basically, even the companies that are doing well during this crisis, uh, you know, will, will need to take a long view in terms of uh, uh, just surviving, surviving the business aspect, not just the technology and the infrastructure part of the business. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Emmanuel. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.